here with the Director of Programs for the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor-Essex, Rosemary Fist. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for the, for the invitation. So this was, um, I think this is a really important topic and it's something that you know, Freemasonry has been struggling with lately, which is uh, concern for our older members during this pandemic, not only because of the, um, obviously we're concerned about not wanting them to catch COVID and, 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 and that, but also the mental health effects of a lockdown, of a, um, you know, quarantine, stay-at-home orders on an older population that may be at risk for things like dementia. But just outside of Freemasonry, just in general, um, you know, what has the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor-Essex been, been seeing in terms of maybe some of the challenges of a lockdown on older populations, those with dementia or Alzheimer's or at risk for those? So just like with any of us, the, the lockdown orders are, are challenging because it really makes us shift and change our, our social connections. And so that's the same with, with that older population, our seniors in our community as well. Um, and so that's, that is, is a challenge for them. Um, I believe too as well that we see that their ability to um, shift into a virtual setting for everything isn't always their comfort level. So it's not that they don't have the skills necessarily, um, but it's not their first place to go in order to build those connections or to maintain those connections. So that can be a challenge then as well. So the resources that they may have been relying on or their independence that they may have been um, having as well have now shifted. And so we're, we're seeing more isolation with seniors in the community, um, just not having those same social connections in, in the way that they were having before. And how, for, for the social connections, um, you know, I guess how important are, are maintaining social connections for kind of mitigating some of the effects or, or um, the dangers of Alzheimer's and of dementia? Um, so when we think about um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, we don't know what causes Alzheimer's. And so we don't know, um, there's not a cure for it. We do know, however, that there are risk factors associated with it. So, and there are some risk factors that we have no control over, like our age or our family history, but there are other risk factors that we can um, address to lower our risk for developing dementia. And so those are things like, um, maintaining a, a social activity. So people who are socially active have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. And so that doesn't have to be just face-to-face -face socialization, but it's any type of socialization. So when we see people who become more and more socially isolated, then that's a risk factor. Um, it's not causal. So I'm not saying that, you know, someone who's socially isolated will develop dementia but it certainly is a, a risk factor in terms of um, that process. And so it's something that we um, always want to maintain that socialization um, throughout our lifetime. 
for people who already have a dementia, we also know that socialization is so very important for them to, to maximize their cognitive functioning level. And so that's really important to keep people engaged in their community, in their um, world around them, in whatever way is of interest to them. And that's really important as well. And outside of the, the socialization aspect of Freemasonry, um, obviously uh, I talked to you about this before, and there's also oftentimes, um, you know, the, there's memory work that comes with it. There's recitations. Um, there can be kind of theatrical components to, to meetings sometimes. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, many of our older members will take on very large and, and very active roles in that part of it because they've been doing it for a long time and they, you know, feel possessive of it or they like to do it, like to show off. But also, um, I wonder how much of it is to keep their minds active and uh, another, you know, way to mitigate some of those, those risk factors, perhaps. Yeah, well, we, as a, as to do with socialization, um, maintaining an active brain and keeping your, your mind active um, is also really important to lowering your risk factor. Um, so if your members are doing it for that reason, I, I can't say, but certainly their engagement is doing something to minimize that risk. Um, but we can think about keeping our minds active in many different ways. And so for those members that you have that are because of the lockdown, missing that connection um, and missing that, that part of how they've always kept themselves really active, about thinking about, is there something else that I can do? Is there another way that I can keep my, my mind active? Can I do something else? Um, and maybe it's learning something new. Maybe it's um, trying something in a different way. Uh, reading is, is great um you know things that challenge us in a way that is positive and it it might be you know puzzles or word searches or crossword puzzles or learning a new language or you know learning a new skill of some kind all of those things are really beneficial to again keeping ourselves going um, it's a use it or lose it kind of uh, perspective. So we want to keep that brain going and active in whatever capacity we can. So uh, in terms of Masonic lodges and Masonic temples, uh, as, as we discussed before, much of our membership does skew older to a more at-risk population um, for dementia, Alzheimer's, um, I guess one, one question I have is, you know, are there things that a Masonic Lodge or, or Masonic community, like what are some, some signs that we should be looking at if we start to develop maybe concerns for one of our members? And um, we want to, like, just what are some things to be aware of and, and to watch for um, yeah. so that we're able to, to help if needed? It's a great question. So we think about warning signs um, and you know, Alzheimer Canada considers 10 warning signs for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. And the one that most people think about first is uh, memory loss, but it's not the only one. There are many other things that can um, tell us that something's not quite right. 
And memory loss is different than forgetfulness. So it's important to remember that Alzheimer's disease and dementias are not a normal part of aging. Not everyone develops a dementia with age. Rather, it is something that happens to some people. It's caused by a disease or a disorder. And Alzheimer's disease is one of the most common causes of dementia, but it's not the only one. And so we recognize that dementia is not a normal part of aging. And so if we're seeing signs with someone within ourselves, within a family member, within a colleague, a peer, um, we want to pay attention to them. So with memory loss, it's memory loss that affects daily functioning, that person's ability to get through their everyday. So if, if we all forget things every single day, if I forget where I put my keys, which happens every now and again, especially now that I'm not driving very often, um, I, I often will retrace my steps. Where, where did I have them last? When did I last use them? But I've still maintained my ability to remember those pieces of the puzzle. And I still maintain my ability to drive my, my car once I find those keys. Whereas when we see it as a warning sign, it's less of that, it's not that forgetfulness, but rather it's actually that loss of memory. And where that loss is affecting someone's ability to get through their everyday. So it's, it's really impacting their functional ability at home. We may also see um, difficulty performing familiar tasks. And this is, you know, something that a task that is really familiar that somebody has done every day with confidence, like use the coffee maker. And then one day they go to use it and they can't remember where the filter goes or where the water goes. So it's that familiar task that all of a sudden becomes difficult to do. Um, I had one client, I remember telling me um, his frustration with this early on in his disease process was opening his emails. And this was someone who in his professional world had used email every day. It was part of his work world. And with the development of his dementia, he was finding that he couldn't navigate that email in the same way. And that frustrated him because he knew that it was, it was because of the dementia that he was having problems with that. So it's difficult to perform something familiar. And we may see somebody who has problems with language. Now, we all have that tip of the tongue thing that happens to us every now and again. You're in a conversation, you're trying to remember something, and you lose that one word that you're looking for. But it drops in, or it happens once in a while. But with dementia, we see that that ability for someone um, sometimes to word find impacts them in every sentence, or their conversations become impacted because of that inability. And so it's more than happening just once in a blue moon, like it does for um, someone else. Whereas with dementia, as a warning sign, we see it happening more and more frequently. And we may see a disorientation of time and space. You know, our, our brains hold that internal clock in terms of how much time has passed. And so, you know, if I say to you, I'll be back in 10 minutes, you have a sense as to how much time that is. And if I'm not back in, 30 minutes, your internal clock is going to say, hey, something's gone here. But if that internal clock is damaged, then that person may not have that same orientation to time. Knowing how much time has passed may be impacted. 
but also a disorientation of space. So even in their own, in their own uh, familiar house or at the lodge, you know, a place that they know very well, becoming disoriented. You know, they walk down one hallway and, and that person might get turned around and not know which way is the exit. You know, because it's, it's that, that part of the brain might be impacted by that. We may see somebody who has uh, an impaired judgment. So our judgment center is within our brain. And so that may be damaged as well. So in this really, really cold day today, um, as we're, you and I are talking, it's you think about someone who might be showing impaired judgment by not wearing the appropriate clothing when they go outside. Um, and so not having that, that same judgment within their brain to be able to kind of rationally think of the situation. And then we see, you know, problems with abstract thinking. Things become very concrete for somebody who has this damage in their brain. And so doing things that are abstract becomes difficult. Um, math is an example of an abstract thing, right? Um, adding up um, numbers in a column. You know, things like that, um, balancing a checkbook, which a lot of people don't do anymore, but that skill is very abstract, um, being able to do that. That becomes challenging for somebody with, with a dementia. We may see somebody who's misplacing things. So, um, you know, I, we all misplace things once in a while, but typically, again, um, like I said, with my keys, we can retrace them. Um, but that person with dementia may be putting things in a really odd place like the keys are in the sugar bowl or the cds are in the freezer um, and then they can't do that retracing in the same way and then we see uh, changes in mood and behavior and personality and loss of initiative and, and these three warning signs again there's there's often a misperception that everyone who develops a dementia is going to be angry and physically or, or verbally aggressive and that's not true uh, what shifts is their ability to express those emotions. And so that may be something that we see in terms of changes in behavior or changes in personality. Somebody who's always very outgoing is now more withdrawn or vice versa. So, so those are all 10 warning signs that we kind of think about and, and encouraging people that if you're seeing these, any of these warning signs, in yourself, in a family member, in a friend, in a lodge member, that you take them seriously because it's something isn't quite right. And it's important to speak with a primary health professional in that state. The best place to go is with your own primary care. So is it your physician? Is it a nurse practitioner? Um, whoever it is that, that you see regarding your health, making that appointment and having that conversation. It doesn't have to be Alzheimer's disease. It could be something else, but it's not normal. And so it's important that we address it or that's addressed and taken seriously. So how um, do we go about addressing or, or you know, uh, watching for those warning signs in the current climate? Uh, I can speak for, Freemasonry, uh, our last in-person meeting was, would have been March of 2020. So in, in many cases, it's been, you know, over a, a year since we may have had any face-to-face -face interaction 
with some of those at-risk or older brethren. Um, so with that in mind, you know, I, to go from seeing somebody who might be at risk, you know, twice, sometimes three times a month down to not at all in person, um, how do we go about kind of trying to monitor or at least check in on those brethren um, when you can't do it by face-to-face as much and maybe they're not comfortable with the virtual space? I think that's a question that you have to ask yourselves in your organization um, in terms of how you continue to do outreach. I think that, um, you know, for our organization, we've certainly have increased our, our telephone outreach. Um, we've increased our virtual programming. And even people who may not have been comfortable with virtual programming, allowing them to really experience it providing them with some, some coaching around digital literacy, um, helping them get online, have all been, been helpful to be able to have, just like we're having right now, a conversation that's face-to-face, but through our computer screens. And so that's, that's really important to be able to continue something in those fashions. But telephone calls go a long way as well in terms of being able to do that and, and continue that outreach. I guess the question more is, is um, like the, the type of questions to ask or like how to gather that information because if I'm seeing somebody face-to-face um, socially like I might not need to ask questions I can just observe their behaviors and kind of gather some of those risk factors you talked about are they having trouble with normal tasks that they would do often are they misplacing things or things that I'll be able to pick up on behavioral changes very quickly and easily if uh, I'm seeing them in person. Uh, relying on telephone, I'm just wondering if there's maybe certain questions I should ask or um, you know, ways to go about checking in to try to catch some of those things that are harder to catch over a phone or virtually than, than in person. It's... it's um... My perspective, I think any education is beneficial. So it's not just about us observing other people, but also about all of us observing ourselves. Um, dementia doesn't just affect old people. It, while it's more prevalent for people who are over the age of 65, it affects people under the age of 65 as well. So it's not just for um, our community members who are 80 and 85 and 90 but rather it is very much a community um, thing of interest and things that we should all be aware of. So I think that sharing information with your membership as well is about, are you seeing any of these changes within yourself? And are you seeing any of these changes within your spouse? And it's not just about all of us observing that one population that is different from us, but rather it's about um, letting people know about, about dementia in a way that allows us all to be better informed and to think about it, about ourselves. So if we start to identify um, some of these warning signs or risk factors, um, or we, we learn that, you know, one of our brothers or our family members um, 
spouse or parent or whatever it is, uh, is experiencing these symptoms and, and these diseases, what are some of the resources that, um, for example, a Masonic Lodge can provide to, to someone who's experiencing these symptoms um, and or to their family for that matter? Well, our hope is that, like I, I said with the warning signs, is that if anybody's experiencing any of these, that they would talk to their primary care practitioner. Um, and if there is a diagnosis that's made, a diagnosis of dementia, our goal is that everybody who has a diagnosis would link in with the Alzheimer's Society. And I recognize that not everyone needs all of our services, but at the point of that diagnosis or at any point throughout the dementia journey, we can provide um, support, education, referrals to other community agencies as well. So that connection comes through our first link program. We want to be the first link for people at the point of diagnosis to other programs and services. Um, that will then connect that person in with a first link care navigator or with an education support coordinator. And that staff members are gonna help the person with dementia as well as their care partners understand the disease and the disease process. Think about some planning. Um, now that this diagnosis is here, what does it mean for that individual? What does it mean for the family unit? Um, and what resources do they need? What, what's really, what are they finding challenging or what are they trying to navigate? We also have um, many different programs and services. So we offer in-home respite care where we have staff will go into people's homes. We have um, two adult day programs that we offer. Um, right now during COVID, we have virtual day programs that are running as well. We offer caregiver support groups. Um, we have education and support series as well um, that are also running virtually right now. Um, we have an a, uh, enhanced, enhancing care program that provides um, support and education as well. So many different programs and services where we want to build up the resiliency of that person living with dementia as well as their care partner to be able to manage um, the situation as best as they can. I will, uh, in the, the description to this video, leave a link to uh, society's website. Um, but if you wanna throw in a quick, a quick plug for the, the contact information, the phone numbers for first link, um. Absolutely. So our website is, is alzheimerwindsor.com. Um, the phone number to reach us at is 519-974-2220. And that first link extension is 231. Perfect. And you'll find that in the description to this video also. Thinking about, um, again, bringing it back to kind of current, current circumstances, uh, I'm wondering, is there, uh, does kind of stress, um, does that exacerbate uh, symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's? Do you find that, or does it affect it at all? Are, are you finding that people who um, have been diagnosed with this and are, are experiencing this disease, has the stress of the situation caused an exacerbation in these symptoms? Is it accelerating them in some cases or are people finding ways to to cope or is, is stress in general like how does stress in general affect uh dementia and alzheimer's 
But I, I would see it as affecting um, dementia and Alzheimer's in the same way as it affects any of us, right? If I have a, a, a huge work project that I'm working on and I'm completely under the gun and stressed about it, I'm not gonna be functioning at my best for other things that are going on in my world. Um, it's gonna take its toll on me. I may not be sleeping as well. I may, my you know, mood might be a little off. I might be acting a little bit differently. So yeah, stress, stress can be a, a, a big factor for people. And the things that can stress that person with dementia might be different with the disease than they were before the disease. So just like the warning signs that I talked about, um, difficulty performing a familiar task. So now making breakfast becomes a stressful event, for example, because that person's memory may be impacted in terms of remembering where are the coffee cups and where's the coffee. And I know I want eggs, but how do I make them? And every step of that can be a challenge. And so now there's a stressor in something that was previously really simple and really easy to do. So it, it, it can absolutely be a, an impact on that. Um, many, if there's being in group can be stressful for somebody who has a dementia. Now that's not a challenge right now during COVID. Um, <laughs> but um, if there's a lot of stimulus, that can be challenging sometimes because it takes that damaged brain longer to process all of the information. And so it's easy to get overloaded and overwhelmed with things. So um, that can be a challenge as we go through that. So um, certainly those, those shifts and changes are, are, can be present as well. Uh, more in general, I, I've often thought about this. Um, once, we're, once we're back to meeting in person, um, not this doesn't necessarily just apply to uh, people who may be having symptoms of or at the early stages of dementia attending a lodge meeting, but this could be really for beneficial for anybody. Um, but I'm wondering about programs, you know, things like um, uh, yoga or you know, some type of low impact activities, but that are still physical or, or you know, require some effort. You know, I've always thought it, it would make sense maybe for, for a lodge, it has, you know, a lot of space in some of these temples to maybe, you know, have a yoga program for, for its members or engage with that as part of a meeting. It just seems stuff like that, once we can meet in person, could be a benefit to everybody in a lodge, but mm -hmm. perhaps especially to people with, um, those symptoms are early stages where they're, where they're still attending Lodge, but are early stages of dementia and Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And, and throughout the disease process, not just in early stages, but throughout the disease process, physical activity is really important. Um, it's important for all of us. It lowers our risk factor, again, for developing a dementia. Um, but even with that, that diagnosis, um, Maintaining physical activity is very, very important. So, and, and I say across the disease process because um, it doesn't necessarily just have to be in, in one sector just at the beginning, but it can be any, any person that's really uh, very, very valuable. I would, yeah, I, I, I meant early stages um, only in the sense that uh, 
they probably, um, I'm not sure how the disease would progress, but there would probably come a point at later stages where they wouldn't be able to attend lodge. So they'd have to get physical activity in a different setting in a, perhaps a care home or with their, their caregiver. But in the early stages, uh, I'm sure they could perhaps still attend lodge and still attend meetings and, you know, incorporating physical activities such as yoga, something uh, low impact, but still physical in nature could be, uh, I've always thought that would be something, it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to implement in the Masonic meeting, the last 15 minutes being yoga or uh, maybe dodgeball, though we might get in trouble <laughs> with the uh, temple. But, but yoga or, or some type of, you know, aerobic activity that's low impact, but still physical. Um, seems like an opportunity that we should look into more for everybody, but definitely could benefit perhaps people, you know, in that at-risk group or at-risk uh, of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with, that brings up the good point too of if they get to a stage, somebody with dementia, they're not able to attend lodge, um, but activities that might be beneficial for them, going for a walk, going for a jog with them. You know, if lodgers want to visit and, and get them involved in something physical like mini golf, that seems like it could be a, a benefit and a good lodge outing too. If they can't come to the lodge, you can kind of bring the lodge to them or bring them to mini golf or whatever it is with the lodge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think all of those are, are positive impacts. And I think too, for organizations like the, uh, like the lodge or other, you know, even faith communities or community centers, I really pose the question in terms of how can we create a space that allows all of our members to remain engaged? So if there is somebody who has a dementia diagnosis, really meeting them and saying, what do you need from us? Um, what would benefit you? What do you find challenging when you come into our space? How can we make our space um, or our meeting time or our time together, how can we make it better for you? And for example, we have a, a dementia-friendly communities program. We're really looking at building dementia-friendly spaces within our community here. And when we meet with organizations, sometimes it's things like looking at their signage within the building. Um, things that are, make sense to you and I may not make sense to that person who has a dementia um, because their brain doesn't interpret things the same way. Or looking at lighting. You know, if, if all the hallways are really dark, can that person really navigate the space in the best way possible? Um, or if we're always singing songs only from memory, is there an opportunity to create words for people to follow along with um, written word instead of just basing it on those things? So we, you know, look at all of those environmental cues and many more and saying, how can we create a space that becomes much more friendly to that person with dementia to allow them to continue to be engaged and create communities that are so much more strong because we've allowed engagement from all of our membership and not just some people. And that's a, that's a good point. Just in general, um, I can speak for myself. I, uh, I use a wheelchair for mobility. I'm missing my legs um, uh, above the knee. So the, but I, you know, the, the 
process of modifying a building for physical impairments is kind of, I think everybody kind of recognizes ramps or elevators um, or push buttons, but I'm not sure how often we think, I, I can speak for myself, you know, it's rare that I think of modifying a building in terms of mental health needs or, or um, kind of neuroatypical needs, things like lighting or signage or considering it in terms of how someone with dementia or Alzheimer's may interpret it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is something that perhaps with, I, I mean, I'm not read the, the ADA myself, but perhaps we've, we've not focused enough on in society is, is how to modify a building from a neurological perspective, not just a physical impairments perspective. Yeah, good point. We had a, a program a year ago where we were um, going into restaurants and, you know, we would take a group of, of our clients into that restaurant, but beforehand we would meet with them and, and do some modifications and some education with the restaurant staff. And one thing that our, our team would do is they would take the menu and they would adapt it for our visit. So we would go um, make it a lot shorter, make it flow better, make the print all the same. And the first day that we did that, one of our, one of the spouses who was along and her husband had a diagnosis, she turned to us and she said, after he had placed his order, she was amazed and she said, he has not placed his own order in a restaurant for many years because he's not been capable of doing so. But because of the modifications that we had done, he was now able to express himself and place his own order. Um, so that's huge. I mean, think about any of us who find ourselves in a situation where we constantly have to rely on someone else and we're not able to express our own voice. And just by doing a couple of those modifications, that person was now able to be independent. Is there any, um, this is just off the top of my head, but a lot of my friends have been talking about it lately. They've been on a big kick. Um, uh, the possible benefits of, of meditation. A lot of my, my friends, they're, they're, some of them are kind of into woo-woo stuff, but they, they talk about it as, uh, you know, helping them be centered and, and things of that nature. I'm wondering though, it seems like meditation is becoming more and more in the public mind as social media. Are there, there meditative benefits or, or does med meditation help with some of those symptoms or, or concerns about Alzheimer's and dementia? Yeah, um, I, I don't know the studies. I don't know the research behind it. Um, but I do know that people who um, you know, practice mindfulness or who are involved in meditation absolutely feel those benefits. In terms of a, a preventative or a protective approach as well, um, we see that meditation and, and will often have a, um, a benefit in reducing someone's stress or helping them manage stress. And that can also be a, a big piece in terms of lowering our risk for developing dementia. So both pieces are, are important. So to any lodges who are watching this, you got a room, you're meeting, put the last 15 minutes aside, do some yoga, do some meditation, find uh, there's nothing wrong with adding some of that to your, uh, you got the space. So see if you can take advantage of it uh, for those last 15 minutes. You can do yoga in a suit. 
I've done, you know, you can take off the top. <laughs> well, you can do chair yoga as well. So, I mean, there is that benefit too. Yeah, there you go. Uh, what, uh, for, for the either, you know, local Windsor Alzheimer's Society or even, even nationally, um, I know we talked about uh, this a bit at the start, but, you know, moving forward, we still don't know in Ontario, for example, uh, when the restrictions will end or how long they'll go. Um, I guess how have how has Alzheimer's Society adapted so far, and has there been anything that you know moving forward you may take from this time and and continue with? I can say for Freemasonry. Um, because we haven't been able to meet in person nearly as much, virtual education has exploded. Um, and that's something that will probably continue even when the, law, the restrictions are lifted. So has there been anything that um, you've learned during this time that you actually plan to continue with moving forward? Yeah, we've, we've moved a lot of our programs virtually and, and I believe that that's been a positive impact. Um, even our day program, uh, we are now offering virtual day programming. So it's not the full day um, at our chapter, um, but it's, you know, a, an hour meeting over Zoom, but it's still, and it's a small group, but it is meaningful engagement. It's socialization. It's doing all of those things. Um, and we see that as continuing, even when we are able to come back to day program fully, and our capacity for, for day programs increases, we see that we're going to look at ways of being able to continue to offer that program concurrently. Our support groups as well are, are running virtually. <clears throat> um, again, over Zoom, we anticipate that that is going to, in some form, is going to continue. Now, are we going to go back to face-to-face -face groups? Absolutely, because there's all of that benefit that we've talked about earlier in this conversation. But for some people, being able to, to join a group virtually has a lot of benefits because they don't have to rely on somebody else to get them there. They don't have to worry about, um, you know, if that uh, person living with dementia needs care or can't be left alone. It's another layer to things. So those things are certainly um, beneficial as well. So we, we have seen a lot of that transition. It also allowed us to partner differently across regions. Um, if just today I got a, an, an email request and there was somebody looking for a very specialized support group um, and not every chapter would have a need for it, but the call came out saying, hey, could we do something provincially to be able to meet the need of this very specific request. And there might be enough people if we, if we pool our um, clients from across the province or people who are looking for this. So those are our positive benefits as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the, um, out of this very crummy situation, the, the silver linings that we're seeing in terms of, at least uh, I can speak for, for Freemasonry and, and other organizations I'm a part of is, um, you know, being forced to, to suddenly think differently about how to proceed. It's, it's opened up avenues we perhaps were always available, but just we didn't take advantage of because we didn't have to or we were focused on this other area. Uh, so it's been really interesting to see 
kind of some things that we've done during the last year that we'll keep doing even once the the lockdown is lifted and, and restrictions are lifted and we're meeting in person again. Um, and yeah, just the connections that you talked about, you know, be, the benefit of the virtual space is you can connect with people nationally, internationally, and you're doing it much more regularly now than you ever would have before. At least I can speak for myself. I'm not sure if it's the same thing on your end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see all of those pieces. So, I mean, those are benefits that I, I can see that will carry forward. We're not going to look exactly like they do now, but we're also, you know, we'll adapt. And it, it's, I think it's, it's increased our ability to kind of look at things in a very different way and approach things in that way. Well, with that, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us. I'm going to uh, mention it again. All of the content information uh, is in the description for um, Alzheimer's Society for First Link. Uh, if anybody has any questions or concerns or wants resources on this topic, by all means, uh, get in touch. Check out uh, the information below and get in touch. To any lodges watching this one more time, you all have time at the end of your meeting. Do some yoga, do some meditation. Um, and yeah, I think it's just, it's such an important topic because, I mean, Freemasonry, you know, speculative Freemasonry really began as a support system for, um, for its members. Um, and back in the day, that support might've been a little bit more, it was, it was, different in some ways, but it's all about supporting your brothers and supporting their families uh, and making sure that we're supporting those who have, you know, whether it's whatever the disease is, cancer or physical disease or a neurological disease, making sure we have the resources and the knowledge to support them, I think is so important. And knowing where to turn, I think is so important. So we know we can support them. Um, and it's not one of those situations where we're seeing warning signs or we're seeing concerning things, but we don't know what to do or how to mitigate those, those effects. Um, you know, no lodge wants to feel powerless in dealing with, uh, we're seeing a brother suffering from this and we want to be able to help. So thank you so much for giving us some ideas about how we can help. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation today. And know that for anybody watching, every region has an Alzheimer's Society. There's always somebody in a local area. Um, we all provide public education. So if there's people watching and they are looking for some education for their own business or community, please reach out. That's what we're happy to help.